Let's open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Hey, you know that's my favorite book, and I'm saddened that we're coming to the end of this epistle, this letter. But at the same time, I'm excited that we're uh, finishing up uh, the book of Philippians. And we will be going into the book of Colossians. And I don't know if I told you, but Colossians is my favorite book. So I'm really excited about starting, Lord willing, next week. And I'll be refreshed because Kathleen and I are going to take a few days this week and just get away for a few days. So I am going to be ready to go to get into the new book of Colossians. What a blessing it is going to be to go through that. Now, if you have been with us or you've been following along with the podcast or if you're here for the very first time catching this book, uh, remember, the, uh, keep it in context, that here, here is uh, Paul, the apostle, uh, in Rome, in, but not just hanging out for vacation. No, no, no. He is uh, imprisoned in, vac- uh, in uh, I guess it's a type of vacation, but imprisoned in, the, as a, in a chain to Roman guards there in Rome, waiting to find out if he is going to live or die. There's no in-between of, of carcinage, of, of, of being in prisons for years and for 30 years for something he's done. But no, he is going to, to find out if the, the ruling party is going to take off his head or let him be free. Now, we know historically, we know in the scriptures that he does become free. He doesn't get killed at that point in time. He goes off and he does more missionary work. He comes back and gets re-imprisoned there in Rome. And that is when we know in the scriptures that he dies. But keep that in context as he's finishing up this letter to the believers in Philippi, these believers who are 800 miles away, who loved, and as we remember in the scriptures early on, as he started off in chapter 4, he says how he's, my beloved, I long for you, brethren, you're my joy, you're my crown, and he was encouraging him, stand fast in the Lord, regardless of what's going on in the church over there, because he knows there's some challenges, because we notice here, and he brings to light in verse 2 of chapter 4, that Yodia and, and Sintiki, these two women were going at each other within the church, and not to say all churches have some challenges, but we all do have challenges. Not only do you have challenges in your household, do you have challenges within the church? And just like a house that is a, a, a family, to bring unity between a husband and wife, they both must be focused on Christ and rejoicing in the Lord and focusing and serving on the Lord and serving one another and putting others' needs before the other. And that is how it works within the church as well. And we don't know why these two women were coming after each other, but all um, Paul is doing here is he's imploring all the brothers there to go and come alongside these women and help and encourage them to put their minds focused on Christ and not their selfish needs or whatever it may be causing division, but focus on the Lord and serving the Lord, and that is higher than their own needs. And when that happens, you bring them back together, and there's unity within the church. There's unity within the family. There's unity between relationships. When you're both loving the Lord and serving and just surrendering yourself to God first, then putting others second, and you being last. So Paul continues here. A Christian life involves proper thinking, we see in verse 8. But we also see in verse 9 that it requires a righteous deeds to come out. 
You're not just to be hearers of the word, you have to be doers of the word too. And so God says, as he, he, your main, the way you think and your mind is focused and single focused mind is upon the Lord and the things of God and you're focusing them through his word of God, then your heart will change because your thinking has changed and it will result in what you say and what you do for the Lord. And it's all good and it's right. It's a good Christian life. And the Apostle Paul was solidly grounded in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Instead of having this uh, spiritual ups and downs that many spiritual people have, he was grounded, he was steady, he was consistent, he was reliable, he was faithful. Because his foundation was upon Christ. Not the music, not the, the goosebumps, not the feelings, not what did or didn't happen in your experience. But his focus was on the solid foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's in Encouraging his believers, the believers in Philippi, to have that same faith, the same grounding. So you don't have the tremendous lows of depression or the tremendous highs of these experiences, and you're just emotionally being swinged to and from. But the fact that he had spiritual ups, he did have spiritual downs because the circumstances could have caused that, but it did not. But he went right on steadfastly working and serving God, doing what God's called him to do. He didn't become paralyzed because it didn't happen the way he wanted it to happen. He didn't go off the tangents and emotions and take off running to go do things when he didn't take the time to stop and ask God, is that what you want me to do? But his personal references at this close of this letter that we'll see here today, today indicated that he was not some victim of circumstances in his life. You don't know what my life was like when I was growing up. You don't know what my life is like married to this woman, this man. It's, you don't understand what our children are doing to us. It, all these, my, my work, my boss, you can blame everything you want. But like Paul, his circumstances didn't change his grounding and his joy in the Lord. He will see today he was content in Christ. You'll never be content in the circumstances of your life if it's not grounded in Christ. So Paul didn't have to be coddled. He didn't have to be pampered to be content. He found his contentment in the spiritual resources, the abundant resources that Christ has to offer. Now, the world can offer you this. Your relationships with other people do not offer this. But the contentment comes from the abundancy of your relationship with Christ. But Paul's spiritual contentment was not something he had immediately after he was saved either. We saw in this letter that he had told them, I have not arrived yet. I am not complete yet. The sovereign work of God doing in my life is still being worked out here. Be patient with me. I'm patient with you. Have grace with me. I have grace with you because God has grace for both of us. Just be patient. Allow God to do this work. And he's sitting there and saying, I haven't arrived just because I got saved. All of a sudden, I'm content in Christ. But he had to grow through the many difficult experiences of life. The circumstances of life help him to grow in his relationship and trusting by faith in Christ to get him to walk through that valley, to walk through those situations, those circumstances. And he did that because in order to learn how to be content, he had to trust in God by faith as he brought these circumstances and allowed those circumstances, I should say, in your life. 
Remember, a Christian is not sufficient in himself or herself. He is sufficient in Christ, in Christ alone. Because Christ lives within us, we are adequate for the demands of the life that God asks of us. Why do people, why is the suicide rate at the highest of levels? Of every walk of life, of every society, especially of the youth, especially of those who have come to a point where they think they've achieved and will go achieve by going into this society or to join the, the military. Do, people do all kinds of reasons and think they can somehow find that contentment and find that hope and that security and that, 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 that peace within, and they come and they achieve that a great success that in their minds. And they find themselves hopeless still. We have the answer. The answer is to have your foundation be based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And then allow that peace of God to come in beyond your own understanding, as Paul has written, and then you'll experience the joy that he's talking about. You'll experience the contentment in Christ that you can have. Because you're no longer relying upon what you know and what you can do and your smarts and your money and your power and your positions and titles and all these other things that the world has been trying to teach you. If you get, grow up and you get a good job, go to school, get a good job, get a better job, go to more school and get more better job, you'll somehow have success and have a happy and content life. Well, I assure you, for some of us who have been down the path and have done that path in the years past and have hit success and have received and done all these things, it still does not give you the contentment in Christ in life. You must base your life upon a relationship with Christ and allow Him to fulfill. Allow Him to bring that contentment. Because I assure you, my brothers and sisters, you're striving for the next position, the next rank, the next place, the next house, the next car. It will leave you even emptier when you finally get it. And you'll become more helpless and more depressed and more bewildered. Just live a simple, content life, Paul says. That's what God's saying to you and I. Live a simple, content life. Allow Him to do the work. Enjoy the walk with Him. Breathe in and out. Talk to Him constantly. Rejoice in the Lord. As Paul says ten times in this epistle alone, ten times he talks about rejoicing. Does that speak of you? Do you rejoice daily in the Lord? Or do you just complain to the Lord daily? <laughs> yes, don't complain. Just stop. Be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, he says. With thanksgiving. Not with complaining. <laughs> that's the way he's saying here. And that's why he starts off. But I say in verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at last my, your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now this is an interesting end of the letter here. Because when you look at this, it's like, but what? You know, what is he butting? It's not therefore, so but what? So you have to kind of go back a few verses and you, you look at those end of those verses in like 9. He's talking about how, you know, 
you know, rejoice in the Lord, yes, and you need to be gentle, and, and you need to be anxious for nothing, and yes, the peace of God is going to fill you up, and you're, 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 it's going to guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, and, and he said, finally, in verse 8, let these things, he gave us the practical application, how you want to get out of anxiety, you want to get out of depression, you want to get out of these fears, Do you want to get out of this, this mental gymnastics and, and drainage of your mind every day because you're just so filled with anxiety, he says, bring every thought under captivity and focus on what is true, noble. Focus on what is, what is just and pure and lovely. Things that are praiseworthy. These are the things you need to meditate on day and night. Stop focusing on the, on the negative. Put your, rest your mind on him. But, he says... I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm closing the letter out here for it, but, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly, even regardless of what my circumstances is right now. I'm in Rome. I'm chained up. I don't know if I'm going to live or die in the next minute. But what I do know is this. Your last, last year care for me. He's referring to Epaphroditus, bringing, sending him over from Philippi with an offering, a gift to help sustain the needs of Paul. He says to him back in the letter back to him that you have cared for me again. For me, it flourished once again. Why? Because we know, and he's going to highlight this at the end of the letter, they have given to him before in the ministry. But he, he wants to encourage them this, in this letter. He says, though you surely did care. I know you cared. I know you care for me. But you lacked opportunity. Now, I sat there and I pondered on this all week long. I was like, Lord, why is he saying this at the end of the letter? And, I have to, and he, God reminded me, he's responding to the letter that, with the gift and offering and Epaphroditus coming out. He's responding and like back and says, wait a minute. And that's what I think the Lord is showing me. They were filled with, oh, Paul, I wish we could have done more. We didn't have any other opportunity. We wanted to help you. We wanted to be there. We wanted to have, be along with you. We love you too. And you can imagine the letter that was coming to him through Epaphroditus. And so now he's responding to him. It's like you and I, right? You have a text. A text comes across. You read it and you respond in that text. And you respond to what they said in the text or on Facebook or in the, on an email. They're doing the same thing. It's just a letter. He's responding, saying, wait a minute. I knew you loved me. I know you want to care for me. I know you wanted to help me, and you did. It's flourishing. I'm, I'm, I'm just, over, I'm just flourish, over flourishing by this. And I recognize. Don't, 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 bang, you know, don't bang yourself up over this. Don't, don't, don't beat yourself over it on this, because I understood it. It's just, it was a lack of opportunity for you to do it. If you had opportunity, you would have done even more for me, for the work of the gospel. So Paul is encouraging them. He recognized this. And he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So he says, I'm not out there saying, the ministry is going to die, I'm going to die, and everything's going to become the loss if you don't send in your money today. 
It's not like those evangelists that you see out there. You don't see this. It's not like those letters that somehow they find you. You've never met these people. And they send you letters saying, we love you. We've been praying for you, brother. And if you would just give a thousand, we can stay on the air. And we can continue the ministry. And, and if we don't do it, we're going to die. And the ministry will end. And all oh, the gospel won't go out. Don't be fooled by those people. Paul's like, like Paul, he says, I'm not speaking in regard to need. I'm not saying these things because I need you to give money. I don't need you to give me anything. Why? Because I have learned. Circle that word. I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I have learned. That means you and I have to understand as a human being, as a non-believer or a believer, you must learn to be content. It's the way you think. You must change the way you think. Oh, how quickly you can say, well, I don't understand what you mean, Pastor. Go back and look at your kids. Those kids have no understanding of need versus want. Everything is a need, right? It's like your husband. Everything's a need. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, Paul is sitting here saying he has learned the lessons of contentment because it is not natural for mankind to be content. You have to change the way you think about contentment. You need to change, regardless of the circumstances, it should not change or should not affect the inner contentment that you have within. The word content means, uh, in the Hebrew, it says self-sufficient. Now the Stoics, the philosophical type, the intellects, the higher than I mighty, they love to use the word content. But their, their meaning of contentment is in a human self-reliance through life's pressures kind of a conversation. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul used it in reference to a divinely bestowed sufficiently, a sufficiency through whatever circumstances he found himself in. He knew that he can learn that God was going to meet his need regardless of the circumstances he finds himself in. Even though he couldn't see it. He couldn't figure it all out. He didn't see how this was all going to play out. It didn't matter. He was still going to be content in who? Christ, because he will meet every need. He understood that promise from his Savior. He understood that promise from his Heavenly Father. He understood the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life, that that every need would be met, and he would be content. I could just rest. I know God's going to work this out. And so Paul is saying, I've learned in whatever state, whatever state was he referring to here? He's referring to the fact that he's going to be thankful in every situation he finds himself, even in the situation he found himself in right now in a Roman prison. That's why he says in verse 12, I know how to be abased. I know how to be so low. I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't even know where my next meal will be. I have no clue how that bill is going to get paid. I have not even enough money to put in the gas in my car to get to job to try to make more money. 
You fill in the blank because you're right now in your mind, you're thinking of what is why, where you at, are your circumstances, are you in a based position right now? Are you in a low position where you're just barely getting by financially, mentally, spiritually? Where are you? Paul says, I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to be abound and to suffer need. And Paul right now is in a Roman prison and has nothing. And he relies upon the generosity of his brothers and sisters who happen to be there and of another church sending Epaphroditus over to assist him to help sustain his life while in prison. Because you would not get fed, you would not get bathed, you would not get anything if you did not have someone come in and actually give to you in the, in the jail. It's not like today. Your you, you, you're, you're heart-giving, full-giving taxpayers, you take care of all people in the jail so freely and willingly. They have no wants and needs. But that's not true in the Roman prisons. Roman prisons, you relied by the generosity of giving people to come in and see you there and to actually take care of your physical and, and basic needs. He was in an abased position. But remember, Paul, the apostle, the Pharisees of Pharisees, he used to be a wealthy man. He used to be a prominent man. He had the titles and the positions and the house, the family. He had it all. How quickly you can gain it and how quickly you can lose it. But Paul says, that doesn't change my financial situation, does not change my contentment in Christ. The joy that's deep within does not be based upon my bank account. It's not based upon my health. And it's not based upon where I live and the weather change. My contentment is in Christ because I know Christ will bring me through everything and meet my needs. That's why he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This refers to Paul's ability to be content in all things. To achieve the, this contentment that he's talking about, he needed the strength of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, that scripture is so free. And I'll be honest here. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm witness of and, uh, and experience where I use this scripture in verse 13 out of context. Because when I first you know, get saved and you're growing, you hear that verse used all the time. I, you can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens you. And, you? and we apply that in every situation. But no, the context is here is the contentment here. He says here that, the, that, you're, you, that this is not some um, super Christian kind of mentality. That you can be super Christian. Because you can be, you know, uh, uh, do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And you can go tackle the whatever mountain you want to go tackle. And you can get whatever you want to get. And take down and slay the dragons, however you want. No, he, this is saying, Paul is saying his do everything, including handling poverty. Living in abundant, abundant, in abundance. Through him who gave him the strength to do it. So many times people go, if I just had the money, 
If I wasn't in a base position and uh, you know, didn't have money, if I had money like that guy has money, of course I would have joy. Of course everything's going to be great and perfect. See, you've been bewitched there because that's not true. Matter of fact, the more you have, the more miserable you become. And the suicide rates are at the highest rates for those who are all multiple rich, who have all the fame and has everything. Matter of fact, why? Because they've achieved everything they want of this world of power and prestige and money and of lifestyle. And guess what happens in their life, in their inner self? They're still empty. They're still empty. They're still lonely. There's no peace. There's no joy. And the only reason why they have any sense of joy is because they pay people and people want to come around you because they can siphon something off of you. And then you realize people are only hanging with you because you have something they want. How devastating it is in someone's life when you're being used and you realize it. See, God is saying, you put your foundation in me. Trust in me. Trust in I meet your needs. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you out. Because he says he will meet our needs. He didn't say he'll meet all your wants and your greeds. He says, I'll meet your needs when you need them according to my will and purpose in your life. And so when you have that saying, Paul says, I don't care what the circumstances, I don't care what is going on here, I know all, I can do all things, everything, including poverty or abundance, through him who gives me the strength to do it. But also note, you take everything in totality of the scriptures, you have to go back to the scripture of John 15, 5, who says also, for without me you can do what? Nothing. So yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but I also know that I can do nothing apart from you. And they go hand in hand, my brothers and sisters. Where do you think the strength comes from for your ability to do the things that God calls you to do? Because I assure you, I've tried it, and I know you've tried it, where you've tried to do it in your own strength, and you've come to the end of yourself, and then you just stop. You drop, you walk, you run. I'm done with this. It happens in ministry, too. Pastor, I want to do this. I'm ready to do this. Yes, I'm, I'm for it. Yes, good, great. And I'm sitting there going, but you, let's, let's pray first. No, let's do it. Let's pray and seek the Lord. Make sure the Lord is in this. If the Lord is, if the Holy Spirit's not in this, we don't want to do it. Why? Because if we do it in our own strength, we'll come to an end and we will crash and burn and everything gets lost. Let us wait for the Holy Spirit to move and then we just grab a hold, a bear hug and hold on to the Spirit of God moving in that ministry and we just go with Him. Are you with me on that? We don't create man's programs. We want to create and just be part of what God is saying, let's do. And then we know we'll have success. We know it'll be fruitful. We know it will meet the needs of the people. We know it will share and spread the gospel. And we will be energized and you people look at you and say, how can you keep doing that? Look at the trials and the tribulations and the tests and all these things. And you're going to say, 
Because God strengthens me. God sustains me. He lifts me up like wings on, on the eagle's wings. The things we were worshiping. God is empowering me to do what he's called me to do. That's how it works, my brothers and sisters, in a Christian life. How do you be successful, Dad? How do you become a successful mom? How do you become a, a, a successful spouse? Be content in Christ. Trust him in all of those callings that he has for you in your life at this point. Not on your own wisdom or the world's wisdom. It says in verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. He's again encouraging the believers here. I know you're probably thinking you haven't really done as much as you would like to do in the ministry and helping me. But you have to understand, nevertheless, it doesn't matter. You have done well. You did what? You shared in my distress. So many times people will love to be part of a ministry that's it's getting a lot of attention and a lot of movement and, a, and it's a big church and there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, I love being part of that because you, be, you want to get something from it. But it's really the key is, is when people are faithfully and still stick with you when you're in distress, when things are tough, when things are small, things are just getting started. And you say, no, this is God is in this, God is working, and I want to be part of this, this movement of going on and moving forward. So he's encouraging him. Even if I distress, you didn't leave me. You didn't sit there and say, I'm not, I'm not giving any money to that guy. Look, he's in Roman prison. Now why would I waste my money in that? How is he going to go out and spread the gospel? I'm not, where am I going to get the benefit from this thing? No, he didn't think like that. Even though he was chained up in Rome, they were still sending one of their good guys, Epaphroditus. They were still sending the money to help and encourage him with meeting his necessities because they knew what God was doing in that man's life. And they wanted to be part of it. Not just someone who's successful and come across as being successful, but to know where God is working in and through someone's life. See, remember, godly... Giving actually does, not, does more for the giver than for the one who receives. Did you know that? Godly giving. Giving in a godly way actually does you more good than the actual one that's receiving it. Why? Because Paul's going to continue here that you're going to be rewarded for the the godly giving. In verse 15, it says, Now, Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So he brought to light, for some reason, he wanted to encourage them to do that. Because they needed to know, do you realize of, of you're the only one has been giving money? Now, another church, Thessalonica, I think it was, also gave some money, but there's no note of it. Paul didn't mention it. <laughs> there's really no note of it. But he wanted to make sure they knew you were giving. You were doing the right thing. You were godly giving for the work of the ministry. And he says, you know that no one else gave. For even in Thessalonica, you set aid once and again for my necessities. Not only when I was with you, it was easy to give to some people who give because you're right there. But will you give to the work of God when you're not personally benefiting from it and you're somewhere else or that person you're giving money to somewhere else? 
And he's saying to him, you're just blessed my heart. You're blessing God because not only did you give here, but you also gave a second time when I was not even with you. You know, the Philippians were really the only ones supporting Paul in the ministry there at times. Remember, Paul worked hard. He worked and he had his own business. He built tents. And so we see that he supported himself partially with his own hands in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 9. So he actually helped himself in the ministry by working hard. And he had a secular job. He built the tents and that's what provided for him to be able to continue in the ministry. And I love that. And it's good. But he also was willing to receive from those who were giving through their tithes, gifts, and offerings to do the work of the ministry as well. Sometimes he said, no, no, I don't want to be a burden to you. You don't, you don't need to give anything to me. I'll, I'll, I'll do some work to make this work. But in the very beginning, their Christian experience, and we saw in Acts 16, Paul left Macedonia. Then they alone shared with him this matter of giving and receiving. And again, when he come back through, Paul was in Thessalonica and on his second missionary journey in Acts 17. He experienced, again, them sending something to him, again, encouraging him in the ministry and doing the work. But think about this. They were just willing to do what God had put on their hearts to do. And they did it with gladness, with no selfish gain. And that's why he said in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. I didn't send someone to say, why aren't you helping me? I started the church there. I poured into you. Why aren't you giving me money? He didn't say that. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that bounds, abounds to your account. Paul says, it's, it's not really so much for me. By you giving godly, it actually is a credit to your account. When you're at the Bemisty, you're going to receive rewards for your godly giving for the work of the ministry. You don't give money when you give your tithes, gifts, and offering. That's not money is not for me. It's not for the church. It's the working of what God's doing in and through this ministry into this community, into this lives here. This is what allows us to be able to come here and not be in the elements outside. For some of you, like, thank God, it's warmer in here, not, not out there in the coldness. But it's for us to be able to be equipped here, then go back out. That's what funds the radio station. That's what funds the outreaches. That's what funds the, the giving and the, and, the, and the missionary work. These things, this is what the tithes, gifts, and offerings are for. And so Paul is saying here, I don't seek gift for me. I don't, it's not my, I'm, I'm so excited about the fruit that will abound in your account. Because remember, the, the, this reflects one of the most important principles regarding giving in the, in the scriptures. That we are never the poorer Forgiving, because God will never be a debtor to the giver. You cannot outgive God. So, so many of you struggle, like, oh, I'm going to give, I need to give, I know I need to give, I want to give, but, you know, let the people who have more money, let them give. No, this is a personal relationship with God, it's a form of worship. So you worship and you ask God, what is it you want me to give to the ministry? And he gets and puts your heart and you give it freely, you give it cheerfully, you give it gladly because you know God is doing the work and you're going to use that money or that gift or that offering, whatever it is. And he say, you, remember, you can't outgive God. See, so many people say, well, I have to give money to God. And I said, why? Well, because I have to. I really screwed up my life when I was younger. You can't pay your debt. You can't pay for past mistakes. 
We have people who come in here immediately. I got to serve. Why don't you just be still and just sit and just rest to see what God wants you to do? And then we'll help you see where your gift or gifts are, spiritual gifts, to line you up with someone and help them in the ministry. It may or, have, or maybe it's something new, like the prison ministry, and we're looking to start that up. And maybe you want to be part of someone who's already thinking that same way. No, no, i got to work. Why? You don't have to work. Well, you don't know my past. You don't know what my life is like. I, need to, I, need to, I have to do this for God. I want you to desire to do it because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. You give because you want to give to God. You want to serve God. You want to serve others, not because you have to, because you cannot pay your debt. My brother and sister, I hope if you have not figured this out in your Christian life right now, your debt has been already paid. You're going out there and giving and you're working to somehow pay a debt. If you would have walked up to the collector and looked at it, they would have said, your balance is zero. It shows no sign of ever having debt. I don't know what you're talking about here. It's been wiped clean. As white as snow. Now you know why I love snow so much. Because it reminds me, my debt has been paid, wiped, clean. So there's no sign of having debt. I don't know about you. If you're not debt-free, I pray one day you will get debt-free. Because there's nothing like when you stare out there and go, that's all paid off. Guess what? God paid it. Do you trust in his faithfulness of paying for your debt? Because that's what saved you. Is your faith in Jesus Christ, his faithfulness that paid the debt on the cross for your sins and mine. And there is no other way. So don't be witched. Don't be bewitched by any other teaching than what the scripture says. So Paul had this thing. I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for anything. Matter of fact, you can't outgive God. He'll never be a debtor to anybody. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. I'm telling you in the letter, don't, don't think I'm, I'm empty and I'm, I'm worried here and needy and I'm poor. I, I have all. All I need, I have. I'm abound. I'm, I'm full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And it was a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. So Paul is saying to them in the letter, I'm describing what it was like when Epaphroditus showed up and the, the love offering that you gave me. It was a sweet-smelling aroma like we see, that we see back in the Old Testament in Genesis and Exodus. About It's a sweet-smelling aroma when the sacrifices were going up and burnt offerings were going up. Into, God was like, oh, this is beautiful. Paul says, when I, he showed up and received, it was so beautiful. It was such a great scent to me. It just pleased my senses. Not only that, it was, it was an acceptable sacrifice. It was well-pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, Paul boasted about the Philippians as an example of the right kind of giving. And he described how they gave willingly, out of their own need. They gave after after that first having given themselves to the Lord. He describes how these people were such 
so grounded in Christ that they, they, just, they, they just surrendered their life completely to the Lord. And then they said, Lord, whatever you want to do with everything you've given us, it's yours. Have free will to do with ever. Our, our abilities, our gifts, our talents, our money, it's all yours. We surrender all, and you can do it. And then God said, great. It's a vessel I can use. Send Paul money to further work of the ministry. Do this. Do, and he's saying, you're just so willingly willing to do it. And notice, most people think, oh, the Philippians have a lot of money. Paul was just zeroed in on that church. Why do you go to that church? Oh, it's a big church. It's a wealthy church. You ever heard that term used? Why do you go to that church? Oh, this is a wealthy church. Don't go to that church. That's a poor church. See, if you're thinking that way, you're not rightly thinking according to the scriptures. You're looking for a church what you can benefit from and what you can suck out of and, and get from. You're not a Paul. Paul's like, no, no, it's not about what you get from the church. It's what you're willingly willing to give and sacrifice for the people. That's who the church is. You're the church. You're the people. Are you willing to give? Are you willing to surrender yourself to Jesus? And then are you willing to, to, to love other people, and, and, and especially those who are in need or those who need help or whatever the concession? And then put yourself last. Because Philippian church was not a rich church. Paul says here, out of your need, out of the little that you have, you were willingly get, willing to give to another who's not even in the church at that moment in time. Does that speak to us? Does that speak to who you are in your relationship with Christ right now? Are you so content in Christ that you're willing to just give out of your need? Verse 19. For my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in the glory by Christ Jesus. So here's a contrast between 18 and 19. I don't need anything. I am so filled. I'm so blessed the fact that you sent Epaphroditus. I'm so, it was a sweet-selling aroma. It was so acceptable in your sacrifice because you're sacrificing for me. It's so well-pleasing God. You're doing it in God's way. You're godly giving. And guess what? Don't forget your God, my God, shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory for, by Christ Jesus. The promise here is that God is going to supply all your need. All your need. Not all your wants and greeds but all your needs. And that is why he speaks of it from a broad perspective or even a restrictive perspective here. Shall supply all your need. According to, and it gives a, a, a classification here, according to this riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This, this staggering measure of giving. There's no, it's, how, how limited is God's riches? It's unlimited. So when he says he can supply all according to his riches, it's vast. There's no limit to his riches. There's no, there's no limitation to what God can do in and through your life. We put him in and say, God will never do that. Oh, God couldn't do that. God, why would God even think about that? Why would he even think about me, little me? 
See, you don't understand the personal relationship with God. Your heavenly Father watches you day and night. He sent a helper, the Holy Spirit. It lives within you. The Spirit of Christ lives within you day and night. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's going to meet all your needs according to his will. How do you know his will? That's back to having that relationship and talking to him about everything and waiting upon as he reveals that to him and he speaks to you by his word. And then you'll sense the peace of God and then you'll have this sense of contentment in Christ as you walk day by day, regardless of your circumstance in your life at that moment. But he says here, all your need. It brings me back to Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, with all will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So God has a measurement. He watches and how and why you're giving. And he says that there's, you cannot give it. You cannot, um, you know, shortcome God either in the same at the same time. Hudson Taylor says it in his book. He says, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. I love that saying. Just as Paul said it, Hudson Taylor says it in such a succinct way, if you just remember that. And so here now he draws conclusion to the letter here in verses 20 through 23. He says, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul genuinely wanted God to be glorified. And he was willing to be used by God. Whatever God needed to do in and through his life, he saw it was fit to bring glory to God. He was willing to do it. Now, God, I know this is going to bring you glory, but that's going to really be great because it'll be fun and I'll get some benefits and people will recognize me. No, no, no. God, if that means I have to go to prison because that's what you've allowed because of my, my relationship with you, then if that's going to glorify you, God, then that's where I go. If it's going to glorify me, seeing me empower me while in, I have nothing, I have, no, I have nothing to my name. And if that's going to bring glory to you, then so be it. But God, if you give me much so that I can do much for your life, then again, if that brings glory to you, I'll, I'm willing to do it. And then in verse 21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Again, there's no church that determines who's a saint and who's not a saint. There's no checklist. Okay, you're a saint because you did this, 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 and this. You gave this much money. You've served this many times. You've been around this long. You've read the Bible three times. No, there's nothing. When you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God, you're a saint. You're a saint. Paul says all those believers, they're saints. The brethren who are with me greet you. Can you imagine? Can you picture it? He's writing this letter in prison. His these brothers are coming in and sisters are coming in, providing his basic needs and visiting him there in prison. They're having conversations, chains, some Roman guards. And they're saying, who are you writing to, Paul? I'm writing to the brothers and sisters in Philippi. And you can see them. Well, tell them we said hi. Tell them we greet them back. It's like a text, right? Who are you texting? 
Mom always do it, right? Who are you texting? I'm texting such and such. Well, tell them I said hi. Who are you? Who are on the phone with? Oh, I'm, I'm on my phone with my sister. Oh, tell, them, tell her I said hi. They're doing the same thing. Send a greeting to them. Let them know that we love them. We're thinking of them. But notice in verse 22, all the saints greet you, but especially, and I love how Paul, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now, two things about this. By the fact that he said from Caesar's household tells you that even though he was in prison and chained up, God still was using him in the ministry to reach the laws. Took him in a place where none of us would want to go. But that was God's will because he wanted someone to get in the inside circle to be able to share the gospel within the house of Caesar. Now, we don't exactly know who the house of Caesar is. It could be the guards. It could be the relatives. It could be the servers. But it doesn't matter. The people were on the inside of the household of Caesar. And that means there's believers in the household. And so he says, even especially the Caesar's household. Can you imagine? Here's someone coming along and taking care of him. And one of the guards, hey, don't forget to tell the brothers back there <laughs> that I said hi. What a beautiful thing where sometimes we think of certain circumstances. I can't, serve the, I can't serve God anymore. I have a really bad situation at home. Things are coming apart over here. I can't serve God in any capacity. i got to stop. i drop everything. Oh, you don't understand. We had a, a hot water heater go out. We had this go out. We had this go out. And I can't give to God. I can't go to church. I, I, my cat threw up. I can't go to church. I mean, it just, it's a crazy how sometimes things can get in our minds to stop us from wanting to serve and to worship and to spend time to people. But God says, be content in Christ. Allow the strength of the Holy Spirit to fill you up and strengthen you to do what he wants you to do. Now, don't get me wrong. If he tells you to take care of the sick cat, okay. Take care of the sick cat. But ask him first. Ask him in all things. What do you have for me today in my life, Lord? I'm content in all things. What do you have for me? Why? Because Paul closes up here in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen in the Hebrews. So be it. It means truly. So when you close a prayer and then close a letter, he says amen. This is true. What I just wrote to you is true. It's complete. So be it. He's done. And then so he started this letter with the grace and he ends with this grace. And then that's a Christian's life should begin and end with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was appropriate for him to begin this letter and end this letter with grace. Now as we completed this letter, I do not want you to forget the things some of the things, and for those of you who are the pencil, pencil pushers there and making notes, I'm going to give you a few things for you to remember based on our study here. The first one is, I want you to keep this in the fact that how do, can I have joy and contentment in my life? How can I have that consistently in my life? And it's not complex. He just wrote about it in this letter to us. Go back and read this letter a few more times. And meditate on it. Because here they are. First was remember to surrender your mind to the Lord at the beginning of each day. 
You must give God your body, your mind, and your will by faith as you start each day. And if you don't start your day that way, when you wake up and say, God, thank you for a new day. Yes, God, thank you and help me through this next season of life or this day. Help me just get out of the warm covers, please, Lord. I need to go to work. Yes, pray for all things. <laughs> and as it gets colder, you're going to be asking more of that, right? I'll bring you back to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is his, your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be, prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what should you do? We must start, remember, to surrender our mind to the Lord at the beginning of each day. Two. Remember, let the Holy Spirit renew your mind through the Word of God. You need to get rid of some stinking thinking. You need your mind to be transformed, and that is by renewing of your mind by the reading of the Word of God. There is no other way. Daily, systematically, reading of the Bible is a must if you are going to have victory and joy consistently in a daily life as a Christian. You must systematically read through the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, study the Word of God. But be a Berean. You need to study it and read it, but systematically go through it. The opposite of systematic is going, let me see here. Oh, I'll read one verse. No, 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 no. You must. And if you have not, if you're not on a, a plan to read the Bible in one year, Come see me. I have a plan for you to try. It's been very successful for many, many, many over the years. A seven-day plan. It will get you in a systematic way to read the Word of God in one year. If you have not done that in your mind, you go, I've never read the Bible. Come see me. It's not something to be ashamed of at all. I, matter of fact, I want to encourage you because I can't wait for you to successfully go through. Because the more you read the Word of God, the more you fall in love with your, your, your Lord. And the more... The, the deeper of a relationship you have, and you're now equipped to do more, even more for the Lord. So come. I will show you and help you to get on a systematic way to read the Word of God. Third, remember, as you pray, ask God to give you that daily, that single-focused mind, that, 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 that humble, that submissive mind, that... that the spiritual mind, not a worldly mind, but a spiritual mind. What, what does the Lord say about these things? And a secured mind. Understanding you're secure in Christ. You're saved. You're, you're, you're going to heaven. This is not a question if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come to every day with that set of mind when you're praying. And as you contemplate on your daily schedule, be sure that nothing, nothing, in your plan, on your schedule, and I don't care if you did it or someone's trying to do it to you, do not allow anything to come into your schedule that robs you of the joy God wants to have for you. Don't allow someone to bewitch you or take you away from that joy. You must fight that. Because if you don't, I assure you the enemy, and I assure you of the, of the, of the world, and even if your flesh, when it's weak, will try to take away your joy. And four, remember this. 
during the day, take note of your thinking. If you find yourself losing your mind, losing this inner peace, this joy, this your mind is creating things that are just out of fear, false evidence appearing real. You're just creating things in your mind just by emotions and stuff like that. You need to stop it. You need to take inventory of what you're thinking about. And then you need to refocus yourself off yourself, off the worldly things, off your flesh. And you put it on who? Christ. You must stop that thinking and say, God is an awesome God, he reigns. And you start worshiping and you get into the word and you meditate on the scriptures that God has given you, that you've memorized, and you start repeating those scriptures over and over until those wrong thinking disappears. It's called a spiritual battle, my brothers and sisters. And we have faced spiritual battles every day, the rest of your life until he takes us home. You must learn how to fight. Get your sword out, which is the word of God, and start swinging. Because you have to get your mind under control. Because if you don't, it will cause your heart to go astray. And it grieves me to think that would happen. And then remember, number five, guard the gates of your mind. You must have the guard that, that Paul talked about in Philippians 4, 8. He says a guard is like a big guard, well-trained fighting military guard. Allow that to be around your mind and to protect you. And he says that in that verse 8, right? Whatever, ponder on whatever things are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report. These things I need you to meditate on. You want to have a guard on your mind? That's what you need to meditate on. And if you're not meditating on that, you need to stop what you're thinking. If you can't, find someone who can help you to read the word of God and to pray for you. And so when any unkind or impure thought enters your mind, deal with it instantly. Instantly. If you cultivate it and if you allow it to grow and you allow that stinking thinking to continue to go and that that unclean thought or that unkind thought about someone, it will take root And it will grow and it will cause division and disunity among your relationships. It will rob you of your joy. And sometimes Satan throws these fiery darts to just start it. And sometimes he will use other people to do it for him. But one of the best ways to defeat the wrong kinds of thoughts is to fill your mind with scripture. You must memorize the word of God. You must meditate on it. You must read it over and over and over. And then all of a sudden you're bringing yourself to a point where you start singing truth to God. That we call worship. We Singing truth. It just comes out naturally. It's a form of worship, of communication to God. But set your mind on him. And finally, remember, the book of Philippians is about joy. Jesus is our joy. Christ is our joy. A relationship with him and a tight relationship with him will produce joy in your life. And that your joy is not meant to be a selfish thing, what to get out of it, but it's God's way of glorifying Christ who lives within you and helps others through you. 
That's why what joy means Jesus first, others second, yourself is last. And that is what will produce the joy of the Lord. 